Okay, back here in the studio with uh, Bob Griffin. How you doing? Doing well. Hey, thanks for having me back. I have to apologize here. We recorded podcast last week. It was, as Trump would say, it was a great, it was the best podcast. It was a great podcast. I had a little bit of an issue with my recorder. Uh, we did it again, and it recorded, but then only half, afterwards I realized half recorded my computer. It's my old computer, and there was some issue with the memory, and then I had to get my guy to come. So I've, I've kind of retooled how I'm recording these Podcast. Anyways, I apologize. This is third time's a charm. And I'm yeah, and again, I'm glad to be part of a, a process improvement here. That's what you call the process improvement. Yeah. So, yeah. and and uh, is it a military term or is that an Alaska Airlines? Because you're an Alaska Airlines pilot for uh, the folks who don't. Yeah, yeah, I am, and I think that's just uh, I'm all about improving processes uh, wherever I go, and uh, that's uh, I, I don't know where I picked that term up, but uh, I, I like that process improvement. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So you you're on the state board of education, and we're going to talk about a lot of education stuff, but. Well, I feel like deja vu here. We're going to talk about your aviation background, which is quite fascinating. Um, you're an Alaska Airlines pilot, so I've actually flown several times where you've been Captain Bob. Right, yeah, no, uh, and it was ha- happy to have you on board. Thanks for, you know, helping put my kids through college by, by uh, you know, supporting uh, uh, the, the guys I work for. But, Do uh, what I can. Yeah, no. It's, 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 I tell McMur- um, Haberstadt all the time, it's, these, these mileage programs are awesome, but they're also very addicting. Yes, and when you get to the four, I get to last year, 75K, only because they carried the miles over from 2020. With So I was pretty close, and I got it. And, man, 75K is good. Yeah, it makes a big difference. That's, uh, and uh, I really appreciate your loyalty to the, to the airline. Thanks. I love Alaska. Yeah, I love yeah. flying Alaska. And then now they have the 100K. I don't have that, but some people I know have that. So uh, it's to the point now where if you're coming or flying from Alaska, if you're on at least 75K. Now, but when you're in lower 48 on Alaska routes – you get upgraded a lot within lower 48. Right. Yeah. And some certain route segments. Yeah. They, we have a lot of first class seats available. So uh, before we talk about, you know, current job with Alaska Airlines, you flew, which I think is, I didn't know this till last time we talked, but the A-10. Right. That was the bulk of my military career was flying the A-10. I, I flew the Cobra for the Army before that and then the F-15. And then when it rounded out my career and retired up here at Elmendorf. So you were enlisted, but then you got, went to school and got your degree and became, became an officer? Right. Well, I enlisted as a helicopter mechanic, but I never really twisted a wrench in anger. While I was in mechanic school, I got accepted for Army pilot training, and I ended up being a, a teenage Cobra pilot and was, uh, did that for six years. And That's helicopter. Helicopters, yeah. Uh, attack helicopter. Uh, the old attack helicopter before the Apache uh, was, the, was the Cobra. And then I, I did that for six years. Uh, got my degree going to night school while I was in the Army. Um, Signed up for the Air Force and and flew the A ten right out of pilot training in the uh, in the uh, in the Air Force. So the A ten famously can lose uh, a lot of its wing and still fly, right? Right. Yeah, it has all sorts of triple hydraulic, uh, redundant uh, hydraulic, uh, manual reversion. It'll fly actually without any hydraulics at all. You know, it's a fifty one thousand pound airplane. Uh, uh, pretty amazing technology and. Yeah, it it can take some horrendous battle damage and keep on keep on flying. And they're still using it, right? They are, yeah. They, they built seven hundred and fourteen A10s, I think, and and probably about half of them are still in service today. It's like the the B fifty two. I mean, they're saying the B fifty two is going to be in service till twenty fifty, which will be that'll be like a hundred year. Yeah. No. Plane. Yeah. No. That the the uh, um, 
A10 has been around for a long, long time. You know, in context, we built 15,000 P51s. They were only service for seven years. The, I think the first uh, operator. The, the, the Mustang, yeah. The Mustang, yeah. That, that, uh, yeah we, we probably built 100,000 fighters in, in World War II of, of all different varieties. And Did you see that deal last month? That, that I think it was a Mustang. Maybe it was a Mustang in that B17. That was horrible, yeah. Oh, Man, jeez, it it's yeah. a horrible deal. I mean. No. And those planes, when you lose them, that's it. There, there's only B seventeen. My grandpa actually flew the B seventeen. He was top turret navigator uh-huh. um, in World War Two. Fifty missions. He got shot down on number twenty one over Yugoslavia. Bailed out. Spent you know ten days evading. Got to some some ba- American base, some ba- some base in Italy, and then he f- got they got back to England, and he kept going. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's amazing generation. Uh, that those folks. I've I've. Uh, uh, yeah, I've met quite a few of those guys and talked with a lot of those guys of that generation, and it was uh, it's, it was amazing uh, the, the things that they accomplished. I always think about you know I just turned yesterday thirty eight, and well, happy birthday it, too! I forgot to tell you that. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, um, these guys, a lot of these guys were twenty, twenty five, and and I've always said now it's like so many people say life's so hard, and we have all, it's like life's actually pretty good. Yeah, I think Robin yeah. Olds, a, a famous uh, fighter pilot, was I think he was. 26, 27 when he was a colonel uh, uh, in World War II uh, in the oh Army. Oh, my gosh. Army really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, my, I think I told you before, my neighbor growing up who lived right behind us, uh, he was a Mustang pilot in World War II, and he had told me that they had noticed, you know, because a lot of these guys were flying really fast. They were, like, you know, dive, and they'd, they'd approach the speed of sound, but those aircraft aren't built, so they'd actually realize that there'd be, like, buckles or the metal would get bent or they would compress a little bit because they aren't built to go, you know, f- faster than the speed of sound. So, right, yeah, no. If if you don't have a flyable tail, there, you know, there's a lot of different aerodynamic reasons. But yeah, that airplanes that aren't designed for su- supersonic flight don't do very well. So you were a test pilot, right? I was. Uh, the, uh, I was chief A10 test pilot for the Air Force for uh, about three and a half years at the, out of uh, Sacramento. Could you imagine those like Chuck Yeager time? Those guys that were trying to go speed. Could you? That must have been pretty fucking scary. Yeah. No. The that uh, the, the the test pilot world is is uh, you know you got to press the on- edge of the envelope uh, to to get something new you know so that's uh, hats off to those guys I was I I never did that kind of test test flying I I just fl- uh, test flew uh, new uh, modifications to the A10 as that came through we would be the first ones to try them out before they would go into mass production were you ever were you ever like huh I wonder how this one's gonna go or do no. you feel feel pretty pretty good about it no there's there there was some interesting test parameters you know we're testing uh, the uh, 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 low altitude targeting and, and safety enhancement for the a10 uh, where you would have to put it in really really unusual attitudes and hold those unusual attitudes until the the computer would tell you to to pull up um, oh yeah that, that uh, to avoid a ground collision and we put a you know thousand foot false ground plane in there but you know 70 degrees nose low that the, no, the ground is still coming up pretty quick you know so Oh yeah, you know, I told you I fly I fly gliders. I got my private pilot's license when I was sixteen, and um, I want to get my next summer is kind of my, my list to get my single engine. But I flew gliders a lot. You know, you you do the aerobatic stuff, and you know that ground starts to really when you're loops or when you're doing you whew, you see that <laughs> right now. No, that's uh, yeah. You know, glider pilots. I, I'm a commercial glider pilot as well, and, and make uh, uh, glider pilots make really good. Uh, that's the best way to learn to, to fly gliders first, and you get a, a really good understanding. Well, when I was gonna... g- growing up, I, I started I was a, working as a crew a lot for these glider contests because it would allow me to fly, and because it's very expensive to some of these nice gliders aren't aren't cheap to you know even it's hard to even rent them depending where you live and if there's a club. But 
a lot of these guys were commercial uh, airline pilots. And yeah. then, you know, when I was really young, one told me that he said, I wish everybody was a glider pilot. Cause when you fly gliders, you learn that you got like one chance to land. Right. Where if you're, you know, on an engine plane, you can try it again. Right. Yeah. No, and you really uh, learn to manage your energy when you're a, uh, when you're a glider pilot. Yep. So then now also you flew cause it's a picture, a good picture on your Facebook, uh, the F-15. Right, yeah. I've Which was probably, was that way more fun than the A-10? It's a lot faster, right? Well, it's, a lot, it's a lot different. It's a lot different mission. Uh, I, You know, the people, I get that question all the time. Which one was more fun? They were both uh, tremendous am- amount of fun and, and a lot of hard work to, you know, to uh, accomplish the mission, to, to do the, the things that the, uh, you know, American taxpayers were expecting you to do with that that uh, precious resource. Yeah, they're um, uh, completely different platforms. You know, the A-10, we were... Uh, I was mostly in the high threat area where we were flying low, you know, all over Western Europe and that type of thing. Where uh, the uh, uh, the uh, Strike Eagle that I flew was the F-15E uh, version. They only only built a hundred of those, and those are designed for uh, uh, going deep interdiction night uh, in, in the weather, low level to to strike deep targets and, and uh, uh, deep high value targets. So you you were the timing of your career. Were you? Of Gulf War or no? Were you the first I was, Gulf War? I was uh, uh, I was uh, uh, working as a chief A ten uh, test pilot during the first Gulf War, and I was retired by the time the second Gulf War rolled around. So yeah. And then you went to work for Alaska right away, or some some airline. A couple of years at Linden Air Cargo. Uh, flying, oh really? Oh flying nice. Flying before, and then and uh, then over to uh, Alaska, and just just started my twenty third year there. So how's that work? You never flew the Her- Hercules before? Never flew the Herc before. No. So you had to. Spend some time. That's a whole different deal than the. Yeah, no, it was uh, a very interesting airplane. Uh, is a is a really capable, you know, hauled road grader into a th- three thousand foot dirt strip one time. You know, kind of. A I was talking to. I'm sure. I'm sure you know. Um, um, what's his name from Mark Air? So my friend Patrick Burke, his dad, uh, ran Mark Air for a long time. But he before that, I'm trying to think of his last name. Burke. Burke. Uh, are, are you talking about Neil or Mike? Uh, Neil. Yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. so he. Um, was up here and he was like came here when he was young and was like doing something with like he was like delivering back in the 50s like delivering milk or something and then he's like i better get my pilot's license and he started flying and then he had built apparently he had built up this very large fleet of c-130s hercules for the pipeline and he was doing and then he started the mark air and there was a whole but he's still around he's uh, i talked to him a few months back we had we sat down and he had some stories oh yeah i'm, I'm sure he did yep so you were so you've been with Alaska Airlines for quite a quite a while. Yeah, I just started my twenty third year in November here. Well, I, I just say before I'm such a big fan of Alaska. It's a great, great, great. And they just they just settled that kind of. There was that little long running because of COVID. There was the contract, and there was kind of in the public with the pilots and the the union right. for and, the. And, and we did settle the contract, uh, and uh, and uh, so that bit of a bit of drama is over now. Yeah, that got kind of weird, weird, weirdly public, didn't it? On on social media, there was like a. Some one of their unions put out like a video ad. They use like Delta pilots. It was a little yeah. bit of drama. Yeah, a little bit of drama. But uh, uh, we've we've settled uh, uh, for uh, a, a fairly significant pay raise. Big shortage of pilots, and there's no surprises. So I just was reading that um, actually it was an NBC piece. So the what's the forced retirement? Sixty five. Sixty five, right? Yeah. And and without with there's very few new pilots. There's a whole bunch of pilots that are going to be forced. To, so they're talking about raising it to maybe sixty eight. Maybe yeah, it's the, the right now that the number of pilots available is about twenty thousand short of uh, the uh, projected aircraft orders. It's that many? Uh, just just in U.S. or just in the U.S. Yeah. So um, 
that, that it's, that's pretty, pretty good time to be a pilot because uh, very, very much in high demand. See, I flew gliders and I'm going to get my single engine, but I really wanted to go when I was younger. I, it was like my heart was set on the Air Force Academy in high school and um, I wanted to be a pilot. I didn't end up getting in, but uh, I realized I was color, I'm colorblind which is a, like a kind of a game stopper or a show stopper, right? Yeah. No, and I, I'm like, not, I'm not sure what that, I've been retired for, you know, to, to almost 25 years now. So it's, uh, I'm not sure what the rules are now, but that was back in the day. Yeah. You, you pretty much had to have uh, uncorrect or 20, 20 vision without yeah. any uh, correction. And I mean, I can like, you said colorblind, you know, I can see colors. I mean, that's, I guess, purple or blue. Right. And that's, but those numbers, those slides, we have to read, like I'll see it and I'll see no number or I'll see like, 32 and they're like at 78. Oh yeah. yeah. So, but anyway, so you're doing all this aviation, but also in this way you came in, we're talking about education. Uh, you're on the state board at school board of education. That's correct. And you were appointed by the governor, I think right after he was elected in 2019, right. Yeah. 18. So yeah. And at large seat for the, the state of Alaska. Yeah. And then you've, I've known you for many years. You've always been kind of involved in education and it's um, interesting because right now the, the Anchorage school district is, projecting a pretty large deficit. It's gone down a bit. I think it was 70 million. Now they're saying maybe 48, I think is the, the latest number that I've heard $48 million deficit. Yeah. But because of, of this uh, deficit, they've talked about, they've proposed maybe closing six schools. And then there was all these hearings recently. And what, what many people are saying is they have to increase the base student allocation. But it's funny because Bill Wilkowski actually, one of the meetings said, okay, well, if we do that, are you going to keep the schools open? And they wouldn't say yes. Um, so there's been some thought maybe they wanted to close those schools anyways, and then COVID happened. But um, let's talk about wh- why there's a maybe a, a deficit, and then you know the number of students has gone down actually. And and I know your last time we talked about the number of buildings and the kind of amount of square footage uh, the district has. So it's kind of a big you know big question. But let's talk about that. Right. Yeah. The uh, part of the big uh, part of the reason they have a big deficit is the misallocation of resources in my uh, assessment that that we've. Uh, we built up a, um, a capacity for about 53,000 students uh, in the Anchorage School District over the years. The 2027 projections were going to be down to about 34,000 kids in brick-and-mortar schools. Didn't you say we had some big number in the, seven, the 70s? Yeah, we, in, uh, in, in 1978, we, we had 39,000 kids. We had 5,000 more kids in ASD schools in 1978 than we we're going to have in 2027, and we had 2.9 million square feet less floor space back then that's that's equivalent to all the high or all the high schools are more than all the high schools in anchorage is only so is that was that that like pipeline related like a lot of people coming up here young people kids i mean it was i i think it was uh yeah that that was uh, kind of the the pipeline area we uh, we were expanding uh uh uh, pretty quickly but uh and uh, for for a while there uh you know i double shifted over to east and when i was going to benson junior high but uh, when that construction uh, got done. Yeah, we were, you know, we were, uh, uh, yeah, like I say 2.6 million square feet, uh, is the equivalent to all the high schools in Anchorage. And we were 2.9 million square feet smaller than we are today with 5,000 more students. So, so we have all this extra square footage and, and they're proposing closing some schools. Yeah. 300,000 square feet of schools is the proposal. But, but, but then now the people in the neighborhoods, obviously we're dealing with this. It's kind of unrelated, but the Girdwood thing with this Holton Hills, I mean, every time somebody, wants to build something or change something in some neighborhood, whether it's zoning or schools, people kind of freak out. Yeah. No. And, and we're seeing that we saw those meetings and, and there's been a ton of feedback from the community on, and these schools are kind of all over those. I think Clack, 
Bayshore Clat, one of those, and then yep. there's one on the east side, and then there's yeah, they're, a mix. They're, they're spread around a lot of different parts. So you go Eagle River, um, uh, all over town kind of spread out because we have this large excess capacity, and, and the buildings are incredibly expensive to, to maintain based upon the rules that have been put in place. And there's dedicated public servants, the Anchorage School District, that work in those departments that are enforcing uh, those rules. But, you know, we have a $830 million deferred maintenance backlog on top of uh, all the other things. The, the, the buildings are just too expensive to maintain to keep the extra buildings. And every dollar that we spend on a building that we don't need is a dollar that, that's not available for classroom operations or roads or uh, uh, any other, you know, public good. So. And la- last time you mentioned, I think it was Airport Heights, some improvement compared to this charter school in Eagle River, and the the, sta- the costs were kind of staggering. The yeah, the, actually, the the uh, Winterberry Charter School is in the same attendance area as, as Airport Heights, uh, about the same student population. Uh, Airport Heights was um, renovated for about $20 million that, that cost the taxpayers to renovate Airport Heights. Uh, in about the same time frame, uh, Winterberry Charter School built their campus from an undeveloped site for three and a half million dollars. So, so seven times, uh, for yeah, for a renovation. Uh, I, Eagle River was. We were talking. I, I remember I asked you before about, you know, these like fancy schools and these nice buildings, and it's like really great. But then you have, you know, these really you're producing China and India are producing these very smart kits. Some of these villages where there's, you know, maybe they're on a dirt floor or something. I mean, I know it's a different comparison, but I mean. Not very fancy, but they're producing great students. Right. Like the highest performing school in the Anchorage School District is, is Eagle Academy Charter School that, that operates out of the, the old Eagle River Roller Rink um, uh, right now. And, and they produce the best student outcomes of, of any of the 90 programs in the Anchorage School District. And they're in, and they're in a, like an old roller rink. And they're and that's a space that's been renovated. You know, of course, has walls and everything. They're, they're not out there roller skating and right. But I mean, they're, they're they are in some fancy new kind of new building. No, no, it's a very limited playground space that the extra kids have to walk across a parking lot to get to the playground. It's, um, yeah, uh, and it really reinforces that the the buildings are not what gets the job done. It's the programs, it's the people, uh, it's the policies that that produce the better student outcomes. You know, because we have this horrible. Uh, we, we have this horrible crisis of early childhood literacy in Alaska, and that's been my focus for a, uh, a long, long time, where uh, only uh, only about uh, 30% of the kids in Alaska uh, are at grade level in, in reading. And, you know, we're, we, you know, there's been so many studies that show, uh, one in particular that, 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 I, that I got familiar with years ago, that the amount of vocabulary, like the vocabulary, the amount of words a kid knows by the age of 10 is some massive predictor and, and, you know, if they're going to go to college, how much money they're going to make, how well they're going to do in life. Because after a certain age, I mean, you really, the mind absorbs so much more when you're a child. And then as you get, I know somebody actually who didn't learn to read till they were um, a teenager. And they can read now, but they always say, they described it to me because just their parents never, they didn't go to school and they didn't get taught to read. And they describe it as every time they're reading, they're kind of in real time translating it, almost like a second language. Right. No. It's, so it's not like intuitive where kids, you know, you learn to read, you see it, you read it, and you understand it immediately. Yeah, and, there, and there's this neuroplasticity window of, of that starts to close down about nine or ten years old. That that uh, 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 the human physiology, the human brain, uh, becomes much more hardwired after about nine or, or ten years old, and, and acquiring skills like uh, learning to read or decode text uh, in particular becomes much more labor intensive, much more difficult if you don't hit, hit that window. That's why the number one 
objective or, or uh, uh, number one focus of the State Board of Education is uh, kids learning to uh, read at grade level by, by grade three. I have some friends who used to live here. They live in Europe now. He works in, in the oil industry. But she's Russian. He's uh, half Venezuelan, half Italian. And that they live in Spain. But the kid was born here, and the kid's still pretty young. Anyways, the kid's like five now, speaks Russian with the mom, Italian with the dad, Spanish at school, and also, you know, just English with some other people. So this kid's like five. And it's really funny because she'll mix up the words sometimes, like different languages, but she really can understand all of them. And, you know, I just don't think, I mean, I learned to speak Russian when I was, like, after I moved here. And, I mean, I can speak it pretty, I'm never going to be, like, a fluent speaker. Right. Because it's just so hard. No, but if if you learn at a young age in that neuroplastic uh, that where that neuroplasticity window of uh, where kids are just little sponges, uh, that's actually the best time to learn to to uh, uh, foreign languages. Sorry, I turned up the little I had the little wrong button turned up. So okay, sorry yeah. about that little little alert. Yeah, so that yeah, uh, that that's the best definitely the best time. Uh, kids and kids who uh, open up those pathways in their brains too when they learn uh, more than one language when they're young understand how languages work so it becomes much easier to acquire other languages later on if you if you can get two languages under your mm-hmm. belt you know even if they're very different languages you know that's an example of my, my wife is literate in five languages that uh, and but english was her last one she acquired and it wasn't until she was a teenager she came here but it was a lot easier because she'd already had mm-hmm. four other languages under her belt before that so so how much do you attribute i mean when i was my dad went he was in the navy 25 years worked at the post office my mom was a waitress they didn't go to college, but I mean, my dad was smart, um, but he always kind of told me he understood, that, you know, it's, you have to do better than me, you have to go to college, and he pushed me to, to take, you know, AP classes, and he was, they were very, when I was a kid, they'd read to me, and they would challenge me. Um, kids where parents aren't involved at all, I mean, how much do you think it is parental involvement versus, you know, this education system or the school? And I think that parental involvement is definitely a big key, but I don't think disengaged parents are something that's particularly new or unique to Anchorage School District and not the, the reason why Alaska, not only low-income kids, but upper-middle-income kids are a, uh, a little bit more than a grade level behind the, the, the national average in early childhood literacy. And we're, so we're missing that neuroplasticity window, and we're sending a, uh, socially promoting a bunch of kids uh, forward into situations that they can't be uh, successful. Yeah, um, socially promoting is that um, not holding back? Not, not yeah. Kids who are, aren't minimally literate. There's a, a lot of uh, current new research that shows kids who aren't minimally literate. We're not really helping them out very much by socially promoting them into situations where you can't uh, be successful. Uh, kindergarten for third to third grade, your your mission is to learn to read, and third grade to uh, through twelfth grade, you read to learn. And if you're not a proficient reader, you uh, the the data shows over and over again, you're not going to keep up with everybody else. You're going to fall farther and farther behind. So, so putting a kid forward that maybe isn't ready will hurt them Hurt them later. Right. And, and it, it comes down to there's uh, two schools of thought uh, on this one. That's, uh, the one has been uh, you know popularized by Linda Darlingham and the Stanford professor, a very popular textbook she wrote that we you never, uh, you, you, you always socially promote kids because it's too damaging to their self-esteem. I remember not, when I was a kid, like yeah. the, the idea of some kid got held back, it was a big stigma. Yeah, for and the it's, kid for but 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 what you're saying and think about long term, what's worse? Right. Yeah, and it's so you, it's you're you're left with two horrible choices: is the the stigma with being retained at, at, at uh, nine years old, or the stigma of being functionally illiterate when you're 15. 
And, and that's the, we're trying to avoid both of those situations because these policies that we're putting in place, like the Alaska Reads Act. And that's what I was going to bring up is now we have this Reads Act that barely, it passed the Senate unanimously. Right. But then oddly, there was a huge fight in the House. Right. And I was in Juneau at the time, and it was, there was opinion pieces. Some of the rural members had problems with it, um, with native languages. Other members had issues. It passed the House by one vote. I didn't think it was going to pass. It became right. a big sticking point for other stuff going on at the end of session. Right. That re- re- reads act. Yeah, the passed by one vote in the last day. And that's, uh, uh, but, you know, there's a name for a guy who graduates the last in his medical school class. It's called doctor. <laughs> so, uh, so it's still the still a state law, and we're working on the state board is one of our biggest missions is implementing that. And it's, it's a, a law that was based upon... Um, uh, the laws that were passed in 2002 in, in Florida and in uh, 2015 or 2013 in in uh, Mississippi and, and several other states have passed them by now. But uh, uh, Florida, who spends uh, even adjusted for cost of living, uh, they, uh, adjusted for cost of living, uh, Alaska spends uh, eighth in the nation uh, on, per student on K-12 education, average daily attendance. Uh, Florida uh, today is 47th in the nation in K-12 spending. On, on kids at average a- daily attendance per student. So 47th lowest. But yeah, they're, the, they're you know, almost at the bottom. 40, so they spend... Per, 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 per student per, spending? Per, per student spending. And again, that's adjusted for price parity from the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, price, mm-hmm. price parity between places. So that's normalized uh, for that. Um, Florida, uh, for uh, the last decade, has been number one in the country in low-income fourth-grade reading. So, uh, so you're saying and, that... Uh, Mississippi is now number two. So you're saying similar bills to the Reads Act passed in Florida and Mississippi, and then they had they were pretty they were pretty low before in reading. Right. Yeah. Uh, when the when the uh, the the act uh, similar to the Reads Act that passed in Florida, Florida was 28th in the nation in fourth grade low income fourth grade reading. They shot up uh, in a couple of NAEP cycles to to uh, and I should say what's NAEP? NAEP national the, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's it's the biannual. Uh, test that's that those are like Iowa tests we used to take when we were kids. Yeah, kind of, kind of similar. It's a standardized, but it's it's the only apples to apples measurement that every school district in the nation uh, takes. It it's a large statistical sampling of every other year of mm-hmm. kids in, in, in reading and math in fourth grade and eighth grade. Um, that, uh, but both of those states, their their test scores shot up after they implemented this uh, the their versions of the Alaska Reads Act. Um, uh, when Mississippi passed the Reed, their Reads Act, it was um, they were 45th in the nation. They're now they're second in the nation in so low-income fourth-grade reading, and and uh, Florida uh, went from 28th to first. So talk about this. You know, what does this thing do? What is what is it? What what's how do, how's it different? What changes and, and why do the results? Why should the results improve? Well, it starts with a really early focus on identifying weak readers all the way down uh, as low as the kindergarten levels and uh, uh, mandates the, the, the science of reading, uh, a very specific uh, and uh, sequential way that, that human beings learn to, and it's been you know, proven by, by research that this is the, the technique. This, it's, it's a technique that, that wasn't often used and actually was uh, somewhat shunned by uh, our UA system here. So uh, UA's educated like 30% of our, our educators and, and, and probably 70% uh, uh, either have their undergraduate or, or a graduate degree that have been here uh, a long time. And so it, it, we haven't done a very good job of preparing our educators, and it mandates that we use that very specific science of uh, reading method. And, and 
but also it has uh, some recommendations for kids who aren't reading at a minimum level by the time they're nine years old, getting ready to get out of third grade, that, that they consider. And, and in our version of the law, the parents are the final uh, authority on that, whether their kid will uh, uh, repeat third grade. They don't repeat, they don't repeat third grade with the, with the, the same uh, teacher and send them back. That's, that's would be, yeah, that really wouldn't uh, improve anything. But if a kid is retained. Yeah, you got, you got to go new teacher because yeah, obviously yeah. this one wasn't getting it done. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you, you, you send a kid back and uh, with a reading specialist and get them. Uh, and, and that, that element of it um, is the element that, that changes the behavior of the adults in the equation. You know, it doesn't really change the uh, behavior, but don't, cause nobody wants to see a, a, a nine year old uh, have to repeat uh, third grade, but that's not the, uh, 95% of the time, that's not a failure of the kid. That's a failure of the adults in the process that didn't. Uh, uh, and because of, of, of that, uh, gate, uh, th- that we're, we're not automatically socially promoting, uh, every very poor reader. And we have a ton of very, very poor readers uh, uh, in Alaska. We're not automatically promoting those, uh, poor readers. You know, th- that, um, uh, you know, again, creates a, uh, something where the, the the adults change their behavior. Yeah, it's almost like an economics incentives matter. And right. You change the incentive. So right now, will it change, or have we done a good job? At, I mean, sometimes kids have dis- disorders or dyslexia or different things. I mean, do we? what do we do when, when we come across that? I mean, is that, are we good at identifying these problems? And We, we haven't been, because mostly we, we haven't been testing kids uh, prior to third grade in, in any meaningful way. And now this mandates uh, a, a reading screening, uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, so three times a year. So that's what you're talking about after third grade. If you don't yeah. get that, that base baseline ability, then it becomes much harder for you after that to develop the, the reading skills. Yeah, uh, the data shows uh, long-term kids who don't, um, don't learn to read early on are, are going to struggle. And it's, uh, that's, uh, it has made big changes, you know, that, uh, some of the criticism of the Florida programs as well, you know, their reading scores go up cause they're retaining more kids. They really don't retain that many more kids in, in third grade because people in the te- kindergarten teachers, first grade teachers, the screenings are, are they're identifying kids and getting them help early. It, but, but, uh, also it, it, uh, it, uh, has had lasting effects in improving their, um, uh, scores later on, uh, Miami Dade public schools. Okay. Uh, one of the m- uh, most diverse school districts in the United States, I guess, if, if you want to, uh, go by, uh, uh, a, a common, uh, definition of, of diversity, uh, 6% of the kids are white and, in, in uh, Miami, not white, non Hispanics and in, in Miami Dade public schools, 55% qualify for free to reduce lunch. 66, uh, are, are 59%. Uh, English is not the primary language spoken at home, and yet their fourth grade uh, reading scores were higher than uh, than uh, upper middle income kids, kids who don't qualify for free or reduced lunch in Alaska. And that carry uh, carryover has gone into uh, later on too. Uh, Miami Dade Public Schools, fifty two thousand juniors and seniors. It's a big school district. There's three hundred fifty thousand kids, but fifty two thousand juniors and seniors last year produced over thirty two thousand uh, AP scores of three or higher AP tests, uh, three or higher. And so three and three is a pa- three is considered like a passing. So yeah, right. It's yeah. One, I think what, it was, when I was there, it was one to five, right? One, one to five. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 34% of uh, Florida high school graduates come away with at least one AP course, three or higher. Um, it's 14% so in Alaska. That's interesting because one of the, um, 
criticisms from some of the rule members when this was controversial was native languages. And I mean, you know, we live in America, you have to speak English. I mean, English is the language and you need to be able to read and speak English. But, but even in that argument, if that was, you know, if there was some validity and, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Florida. I mean, there's Spanish speaking kids, Haitian speaking. I mean, there's a lot of kids with, you know, parents or immigrants. And like you said, don't even speak English at home, first language. Um, and, According to you know the numbers you're giving, they're doing very well there with the reading and the, and, and the and AP classes when they're older. And we and we are we we're, we're we're very sensitive. The state board of education is very sensitive to the um, uh, uh, immersion uh, programs and and uh, language re- revitalization programs. We have several of them that have been going on for quite a while. And, and I'm not particularly concerned about those programs because as it turns out, the kids that are in um, uh, these immersion programs for Yupik or Nupiak. Uh, uh, generally, do uh, their their proficiency rate in English is twice as high as the uh, underlying kids that are well, around go, the, going, around them. And going back to before, when you know the kids have those multiple languages, they develop that those extra skills for for languages. Right. Yeah. So I, I, uh, we're very very sensitive uh, to those uh, those concerns, uh, the cultural sensitivity and the the English language uh, learner kids. But again, the the, the data t- shows us that those kids that are multilingual actually are, are doing much better in English uh, than, the, than the kids who are not multilingual. So now this bill passed, it, it goes into effect. Uh, when, was, when was the effective date? Uh, well, it kind of uh, works its way through over the course of a, a couple of years before it, it actually goes into to full effect. There's, there's a ton of, of different uh, regulations and, and things and, and infrastructure that has to be uh, put in place. But I think it's really motivated a lot of people to uh, uh, start getting down in the trenches and, and taking a, a close look at this. Um, uh, I, I think it's already had an impact in our last NAEP test scores that came back. We were dead last in, in the country in low-income fourth-grade reading. But we were uh, dead, dead last. Dead last? Oh, yeah. We we're, we're, have been for, for years. We're de- uh, but we're, we're actually um, dead last by only a little bit this time. We were, uh, last yeah, I was, was, was going to say, what's the spread on, like, between 50th and 40th or 30th? Is we, it a- we were, uh, well, uh, 10 and 8 points is, is roughly a, a school year, and we were 10 and 8 be- points behind the, 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 the next lowest uh, the state, which was New Mexico. That, well, that's uh, where I'm from originally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so, uh, but we're only one point behind now. So we had actually, um, I think some of this is already uh, in the conscience of the education uh, uh, folks all across the, the state because uh, across COVID, uh, between the 2019 NAEP test and the 2022 NAEP test, we had some of the lowest learning loss in the United States. So it's that's something that makes me really optimistic about. Why do you think trying. that is? I, I think we, we had uh, some of the fewer um, uh, COVID. Restri- we never had statewide COVID restrictions, so we actually kept quite a lot of our schools open uh, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much throughout the pandemic, and and so uh, that that contributed. But also, I think there's a lot of been a lot of emphasis since it's been a priority of the State Board of Education to uh, focus on early childhood literacy, and I think that, that's that been helping a lot as well. I was going to ask you, going back to that social promotion, you know, holding kids back, is that is that about, how much of that is about, you know, this kind of idea that, I remember when I was a kid, it kind of started this, everybody gets a trophy, you know, don't worry, like, we can't say somebody won because somebody then lost, even though in life that's how life works right, right. How know, mu- is that part of that kind of culture it, of it is and, and i alluded a little earlier to the, these very popular textbooks that were written by uh, stanford professor linda darlingham and uh, and then the the philosophy that um kids should always be socially promoted be- because we're you know we have to protect their self-esteem where you know the era that i grew up in you earn self-esteem through achievement not you didn't um 
uh, you didn't have self-esteem so that you could achieve. It was kind of uh, a, a reverse uh, equation. Yeah, I, I, I get it. And for almost anything else, I would say uh, social promotion of, of kids is, is, is probably the, the right thing to do. But because of this neuroplasticity window and the, the brain, brain development, you got to get early childhood literacy done at the, at mm-hmm. the right time or, or it's, it just becomes incredibly resource intensive. Well, I, I, I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I have a very vivid memory kind of a lesson. Uh, I played soccer and like a little, you know, youth soccer team and we were pretty, pretty good team. We got to like the finals of a tournament and we, we lost by one goal. Yeah. And so we lost the tournament and we were all pretty pissed off and upset that we missed the trophy and all that. Um, but then, you know, the next you know, next year, we, we remembered that. Yep. And that was a big driver and motivator. Right, yeah. If we would have all got the same thing, I yeah. probably wouldn't have given a shit. Right. No, that, that, that's exactly right. You know, and, it's, and, you know, my focus has, has really been on these low-income kids and, and, and trying to get that. But uh, upper-middle-income kids are not doing that well in Alaska. We were second to last in, for upper-middle. Kids who don't qualify for free or reduced lunch. We're, we're second to the last in, in the nation. And that's something else I wanted to bring up. I've, I've read, I think it was Fooled by Randomness maybe, but it was a Malcolm Gladwell book, and it talked about this program in <clears throat> New York City, and I think it was, the acronym was KIPP, Knowledge. It was oh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, the KIPP Academy. Uh, that they, they took inner city uh, kids from the Bronx and... and Some of the and, worst and, performing... And, and, uh, Lower East Side and, 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 and um Harlem and uh, put them in these uh, uh, academies, and the kids were outperforming. The, the Kip Academy, the rocket ship charter schools in San Jose, and they have spread out to other places. There's a lot of great examples well, the, of how that has, has worked really well if you if you focus on uh, the the basics and, and getting kids uh, literate early. Well, the big takeaway from 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 that was the only deal with the parent. I mean, they had one deal with the parents mm-hmm. to, to be in. The, you have to make sure the kids are there, and that's it. And it's, it was highly intensive. It was 10 hours a day. But they didn't, the big difference is they didn't take summer off. Right. And we were talking before about, you know, we have this agrarian model of farming that's still, and plus teachers, I'm sure a lot of them like to have the summers off. But when a kid goes on two-month, three-month summer break and doesn't do anything. Right. And they go back, they, they're at a huge disadvantage to the kids whose parents put them in like a camp or they keep in, in, engaged or they make sure they're still reading and they make sure they're still doing things. And, and these KIPP results were like, I mean, years later, you know, these, these are some of the poorest kids, right? But they're, they're, I mean, they're going to Ivy League. They're getting huge SAT, ACT school. I mean, they're doing very well. Yeah, there are very few European schools that, that take three months off like we do. It's uh, Six weeks is kind of the norm uh, for the, the first world down. That, that you got to go, year, we should go yes. year round, right? Yeah. You take a little summer break, a little winter break, but you keep going and p- kids don't lose, especially when they're young lose three months of knowledge that's a, that's a separate battle but we I, it's we do have uh, a lot of uh, uh, school districts that have the, the capability of, of changing the agrarian calendar uh, quite a bit if, if they want to there's there's we have that latitude within uh, state law to make that happen but it's not not only the agrarian calendar there you know generally the uh, there's uh, tons of uh, different excuses that they come up with well you know it's poverty the poverty is driving uh, that well you know Alaska is in the, the, the bottom third of the poverty rates uh, in the United States. and uh, Anchorage, in, in particular, uh, out of the uh, top 100 largest cities in the United States, Anchorage has the ninth lowest poverty rate out of those top 100. Uh, Miami, 16th highest poverty rate out of the, the top 100 uh, cities in, in the United States. 
And I said, well, it's this, uh, um, another one that really makes me scratch my head is, well, it's, you know, we have this great diversity in, in Alaska. And I'm, and I'm saying, really, what's, what is that? What, what are you telling me there that brown kids are hard to teach? Is, it, is that the, the Yeah, that's a weird, that's a weird. Uh, it, 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 but you've, you've heard them lead with that uh, uh, a lot. And this 2015 study by uh, Professor Chad Farrell, the sociologist over at, over at UAA, was actually made CNN and has been, you know, cited. This is a diversity thing, right? Diversity thing that we had the most diverse uh, schools in, in the United States. The the, the uh, that uh, we had, you know, fifteen of the twenty most diverse schools in the United States. And I, uh, I'll send you a copy of uh, Dr. Farrell's uh, study, but it's pretty interesting the technique that he uses assigning logarithmic scales to, uh, you know, come to the conclusion that that I'm re- uh, still puzzled by. I don't know why why it actually makes a difference of of what our, our diversity is. But if you look at the, the latest Wallet Hub uh, surveys in 2022, Anchorage, the 71st largest city, is, uh, was, uh, here, I had some notes down here, is uh, 126th in ethnic diversity uh, in the United States and 182nd in language diversity in the United States. So we're not a particularly uh, uh, diverse community. The uh, Anchorage School District right now has about um, 60% ethnic minorities, you know, compared to like uh, Miami-Dade, it's ninety four percent ethnic minorities, and so yeah. I mean, that, that, that thing kind of stuck. I mean, isn't it Mountain View? They always cite as the most diverse school in the country, or something, isn't that right? Yeah, and it's um, yeah. I'll, I'll send you a, a copy of that study. But even on on page six of of, uh, of uh, Professor Farrell's uh, study, it points out that that uh, and he was basing this on two thousand ten census data that the percentage of ethnic minorities to white folks in, in Anchorage is it went from one point eight percent of the national average. So we're we're very average as far as uh, You're saying this guy might have pulled the wool over. <laughs> yeah, well, I you know it's it's something that's been repeated a, a lot, and nobody really questioned it. Well, and, it's like it, it's parroted all the time, right? Well, and, and you got guys like you and I that travel around a lot, and the anecdotally that doesn't jive with with the, with the <laughs> things. That I remember when seen. I first heard that, and I was like, yeah, I, mean, I don't spend a ton of time in Mountain View, but I was just like, huh, it didn't really. A lot of white people. <laughs> well, strangely enough, um, we don't. I haven't heard that uh, come out of the, the the new superintendent. Maybe it's because he came from Houston, Texas, which is listed in the Wallet Hub survey as the most uh, mm-hmm. diver- diverse school district, or diverse well, well, city go, in the United States. Go, going back to, you know, the the, the poverty or the, or the um, kind of minority status, status. I mean, let's just say there was some validity in, in, in any of that, and I don't think there is. Wouldn't, wouldn't the goal be not an excuse, but how do we fix that? Right, yeah, no. I mean, it's not an excuse. It's like, well, what's going on? Why are we, wh- how do we improve this? Right, no, and, and uh, but it's, it was always kind of a, a little bit of a dog whistle that, that, that this is, you know, hey, we're doing the best we can, but, you know, this, this, is, this is our lot in life. We, we don't have as many white kids as we used to have. And I always found that strange that played into the, 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 the a phrase that uh, George W. Bush coined years ago about the, the soft bigotry of low expectations, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, that we've uh, set and yeah, Bill, you know, Bill Maher uses that term a lot. That's yeah, it. no, it's, it's, uh, and it's absolutely true. And, and, and we, you know, I, uh, that's why up until, you know, uh, Dermot Cole had this uh, thing where he got, and it was report actually repeated a couple of times on the Senate floor that, that our, our uh, white kids are doing fine in, in school. It's that, that our, our native kids that are dragging our test scores down that we do have, uh, disappointing scores between the native kids are, are upper middle income white kids uh, are uh, near the bottom in, in, uh, in almost every, every category. Yeah, so I mean, so, so people who say this, what's, what's their, 
prescription as well. It's, it's too bad. Yeah. No. Well, I I think uh, the Alaska Reads Act is going to have a lot of an impact when we get a uh, we're going to have a, a lot of focus on on getting these uh, uh, ca- yeah, kids uh, literate early on. And when we start to see some of these big successes, like I saw in Mississippi again, Mississippi, poorest state in the nation, over eighty percent of the kids are free or reduced lunch in in Mississippi. Uh, uh, huge uh, uh, ethnic minority populations. Again, that doesn't make any. It shouldn't make a difference at all. I think there's the brightness of a child's mind is not defined by their skin color, but it is quite often uh, a big impact by their economic status. So, uh, poorest poorest state in the nation, uh, one of the lowest uh, spenders on on K twelve education. Not as not quite as low as Florida, but lo- one of the lower uh, spenders, e- even adjusted for the the uh, price parity. And they're number two in the country in low-income fourth-grade reading. When did they pass their bill? In 2013. So not, not just 10 years ago, basically. Right. Yeah, they were number three uh, in 2019. In 2022, they're number two right behind uh, Florida. What were they in 2013? They were pretty really low? They were 45th. So how long did it take them to go from 45th to number three? 45th to number three was... Uh, they passed in 2013. Six years later, 2019, they were they were they were third in the nation. So if this thing works like in Florida, Mississippi, by 20, you know, late 2020s, we should be doing really well. Right, and then and uh, the the people from Florida and Mississippi are going around all over the country. You know, they're they're celebrities in in the in the uh, education reform uh, because they they've made this these amazing turnarounds. And I've seen some of them, and it's uh, it's quite kind of bipartisan. There's Republicans and Democrats. I mean, it's not like one side is push. It's it's a you know kind of bipartisan effort. Well, it's 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 amazing how success has a has a thousand fathers, and and uh, and failure is always an orphan. Um, that uh, that's funny. They say, <laughs> the political term though that. Things that they say is you know you, you don't you can get a lot done if you don't t- you know care who takes credit right because yeah. people want the credit oh my gosh look what we got this great thing here yeah I think you'd be hard pressed uh, even though there's uh, you know uh, large majorities of Republicans in places like like Florida I think you would have a hard be hard pressed to to have uh, Democrats in Florida talking down their education system the people in Florida are very very proud of of the things that they've uh, accomplished uh, without spending a, a a ton of money but focusing. On the basics, uh, incentivizing good behavior. One of the, the reasons they have uh, really high AP uh, test score pass rates is they they pay schools extra for kids who who pass an AP test uh, with a, with a three or higher. Yeah, and see, I've I've heard that about test scores and these things where you get rewarded, and I've heard people say, well, you can't do, argue against it because of different reasons. Oh, you don't want to make kids feel bad or or the teacher is not, you know, feel good if their kids aren't. But but I, I'm thinking that that's like competition. You know, you, yeah. you incentivize people to do. I mean, that happens in the workplace all the time. Bonuses, you know, incentive-based bonuses. And um, I think it'd be it's great to incentivize the schools to compete compete against one another. Yeah, it's been an, an incredibly successful for, and again, it's it's not only it was not only the fourth graders, uh, but the people who have benefited the, the, the most our students with disabilities, um, uh, ethnic minorities, and low-income kids in, in Florida. Yeah, lo- the low-income Hispanic kids in, in Florida uh, outscore the national average uh, in, in fourth-grade reading. And you, and you think it's mostly or primarily or all due to this re- this reads bill? That that is a big part of it. That Florida had a big uh, wave of of uh, reforms under uh, uh, Jeb Bush when he was his first term as, as governor back in, in that era, and had uh, good uh, um, you know bipartisan support. Uh, but he had did have a, a quite a, a large uh, Republican majority as well too. 
uh, passed these uh, reforms, and they've uh, produced some amazing outcomes. It's kind of interesting. I was in Florida, actually, in November. My aunt, it was her 75th birthday, surprise birthday. And then her daughter, my cousin, is married to this guy, and his family's like, they're like big, you know, can't stand DeSantis. But she's a teacher. And I was, I just, the election just happened, and he got, you know, like 60% and won Miami-Dade, which is yeah. nuts for a Republican. And, and even he was like, yeah, I don't like like DeSantis, but um, I'll be honest, um, he gave big you know in- salary increases to teachers, so like, I'm actually like fine. <laughs> yeah. it, would be, it would be like a really here. I mean, it'd be like I can't even you know some really big Democrat being like I just you know I love Dunleavy. Yeah, no, it's uh, and uh, we we put a ton of resources into K twelve education. It, you uh, look at the stats from uh, one of the other you know things is oh we we underfund our schools. That's why we have poor, poor results. But if you look at, at the, the stats that comes out of the NEA rankings and estimates, it's a, it's a document published by the NEA every year. They have for, for years that 2003 to 2018, Alaska was number three in the percentage increase of, of K-12 spending per student in average daily attendance, uh, about triple the rate of inflation. In I mean, the, how much of that is going to the, because I mean, I know people that they start teaching at I think it's like 45 or 55. It's not, I mean, you can make so much, even when you're there for a long time, you can make so much money right now, uh, especially math teachers, science teachers uh, in the, in the private sector. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I'm, some people want to teach. I mean, that's, that's, there's, there's that element of it, but I mean, I've always said for a long time, teachers, um, you know, nurse, all these jobs, we need to pay them, you know, you value society. You can see where the society puts a value and, see how much people are teachers are making and it's and again it gets down to uh, the misallocation of the resources not the actual resources there that that the latest uh, st- uh, stats from the national Sedu- education Pro- uh, nea is that we're eighth in the nation adjusted again adjusted for price parity uh, across states so we're eighth in, in the the nation there was a an icer study that that showed oh we were down near the bottom but it was it was probably the worst product i've ever seen out it come out of isa just incredibly flawed in that they adjusted for the uh, cost of living in Alaska and didn't adjust for the cost of living anywhere else. Alaska is not the most extensive state. ICER put that out? ICER put that out. And it's, and they're usually so good on this stuff. They, 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 yeah, I was very disappointed because they're usually so on top of it. But they, but they in, in their study they put out, they didn't adjust for the, the cost of living other places. And Alaska is no longer, uh, you know, maybe back in the day it was, but no longer the most expensive place to live price parity i think we're eighth in the in the, in the nation um, i mean think about parts of northern california or oh, Seattle Hawaii or, or, yeah yeah some yeah. of these cities were no no it's it, and I'll, i can i'll send you the data on that too but it's uh, this assumption that that everything is just so much more expensive uh, here is uh, that that when again when you adjust it for price parity based upon you know u.s government figures we're eighth in the nation in, in k-12 spending in 2020 so so we spend uh, a pretty significant amount of money on per, per student in Alaska. So, some places more, some places. I think mean, what's Anchorage? Twenty eighteen, twenty thousand. Or the last uh, the the last certified annual financial report put it about nineteen thousand dollars per student in, in Anchorage. Yeah. But 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 this we don't see. I mean, this obviously isn't all going to to teachers. It, there's a big administrative cost. You're talking about this building maintenance before. Well, yeah. If you, if you think about twenty five kids at at, at uh, um. At, uh, twenty thousand—that's uh, that's a half a million dollars. That's you know mm-hmm. the teacher's not making anywhere close to that. So we're we're misallocating the, those resources, not getting them down to the class, and it gets back to these facilities management. You know when 
like uh, Inlet View Elementary School, $742 a square foot was a proposal to, to rebuild Inlet View Elementary School. Well, we have $830 million in, in, in def deferred maintenance. Um, the recommendation in the capital improvement plan is we spend 4% of the, the replacement value for student, uh, for schools every year. And that's, that's just hundreds of millions of dollars a year that they're, uh, they, 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 they think they need to, to, to keep up. So, um, the, the the price per square foot for maintaining these maintaining these facilities in the in the public sector is uh, you know just robs resources from classroom operations and that's one of the biggest uh, things that, that keeps us from being able to pay teachers a decent wage or um, have a uh, better work rules. Um, I got to ask you real quick. Just uh, obviously the snow deal for the last few weeks, uh, and you're on the state board, so not not Anchorage, but they close the schools for six days, and I don't know if you heard they're just this bizarre proposal to extend the school day by 30 minutes. Right. So, and, so, and some of this, uh, or, or maybe add some days, but this requires state board approval, right? Right. Yeah. And it's, and it'll, it'll, it'll probably uh, go through, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, of seat time. I'm, I'm a, more of a fan of shifting towards mastery based models where, you know, uh, people are uh, judged on what they know and not how long they've sat in a chair, you know, so that, that, uh, but, it's part of the process uh, r right now, and it's in, um, yeah, if, if kids are in school longer, they'll have, uh, they'll, they'll learn more. That's the other big thing that we really need to start to focus on. We're second the worst in the country in, in chronic absenteeism. We have about uh, a little fewer than, uh, less than 500 schools in, in the state, and in 141 of those schools last year, uh, more than 30% of the kids were chronically absent. Well, I mean, they missed more than 15 uh, school days. What do, what do we do? Do we still, I mean, when I was a kid, there was like the truant off. I mean, never happened to me, but you t heard of like the truant off. Like if someone doesn't come, does, do well, we I, do we check up on them? Or I'm, what's I, I'm not a big advocate of, of truant officers. Really. I'm, is, is that still I'm, a thing? Do they still have those people? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, if they uh, if they do, I'm not aware <laughs> of it. But the but the, the truant officers, I'm not really a, a big fan of that. I'm, I'm a, a fan of of making schools be re responsible for making a school an attractive place that kids want to be. If uh, that, I think that has a lot to do with our chronic absenteeism is they don't, they don't find school particularly relevant uh, for their, their situation. And, and when you add a little bit more uh, competition well, into the, into the system that, that uh, schools will uh, find ways to be innovative, to make uh, uh, classes more interesting and engaging for kids and they'll want to be there. I'll tell you, I remember in high school, um, and a lot of this was driven by my parents, and, and I was motivated, and I wanted to, you know, I was kind of dead setting going to the Air Force Academy, and I just always wanted to challenge myself. So I took a lot of AP classes, but I, and those were hard, I mean, those were hard. Right, yeah. You know, I took AP, AP History, AP English, AP U.S. History, European History, AP Chemistry, which, by the way, Chemistry, I was, I'm horrible at science, I didn't. All the, all the other ones I got like fours and fives on. Right. I got like, I was so bad at that. I, yeah. I, did, I think I got like a two. Yeah. I, I hated the AP chemistry, but, but I took a lot of these AP classes. But then I also took regular classes right. because you can't take just all AP classes. And, and I don't want to make this sound like negative, but when I was in my AP class, it was a very uh, challenging, you had to pay attention. It was learning. When I was in some of the other classes, I was so fucking bored. And yeah. I was I was like, I can't believe they're, this is happening. It was, I wasn't learning anything and it was kind of a, a bit of a goof off. And I would tell some of my friends, why don't you guys take the AP? Oh, I don't want to, that's too hard. I don't want to do that. And I tell you what, it was so much more enjoyable for me to be in hard classes 
than be stuck in these classes where I, I was bored and didn't even want to be there. And that's exactly it. You know, and sometimes I think we uh, miss that, that kids like structure. They like challenges. They like uh, human beings in, in general. We, we, we like uh, challenges. We, we find satisfaction from overcoming ad- adversities. And uh, tough courses are, you know, mold you into, you know, a, a better uh, adult later on. And, and it has spillover of things, you know. Again, I, I focus mostly on, on early childhood literacy. I, I was, uh, did pretty math-heavy curriculum when I was in high school uh, as well. But, but you know, I, I could care less if a kid could uh, recite or even apply the quadratic equation or solve differential equations. Um, th- there's not a lot of occupations where that becomes uh, a necessity, but, but we do really have to focus on kids uh, be, be when they're in that neuroplasticity window of learning to, uh, to read and we, we've got to get all of our kids. We can't, we can't constantly leave them behind. Right now, our, our stats are, are showing where about half of our kids are desperately poor readers in, in Alaska, well, and that has to change. Hopefully this reads bill has, has an impact like it did in Florida and Mississippi. Well, last thing I'll ask you is you're on the school board. It's a five-year term. They stagger it so the governor can't load the board up, I guess, because governor's four-year term. But are you going to go for a second uh, term there because you're up you'd be up next year right next year yeah my uh, term ends in 24 uh and yeah yeah i i have some unfinished uh, uh work to do it's it's been a pleasure w- working on the board my colleagues on the on the board are just a fantastic group of people how many is it 11 11 seven seven we're spread out uh, all over the the state we have uh, uh people from kotzebue to ketchikan and, and all uh, points in between uh, that that uh, spread out all over the state. So just an amazing uh, group of talent and and uh, very focused on producing better student outcomes. All and we're all volunteers. Uh, that nobody you know get gets paid anything for being on on the state board. It's 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 a privilege to serve. Did you get like a little little per diem on the meeting? Did they give you? Yeah, well, that's a few bucks. Yeah, and that's 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 available. Um, uh, uh, nothing on my my colleagues most uh, most of them participate in that, but I don't participate in that. Uh, it's not much either. It's it's not it's not, uh, it, it's, it's not much. The the, but, the board you want to be on is yeah. the AOGCC. Okay, yeah. Oil and Gas Conservation Commission that yeah. pays I think about one hundred and fifty. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's I, one of the big ones. I, I, I it's, this is kind of the pay forward you know routine for me is mm-hmm. is it. That I have a little bit of this public service gene, you know, 20 years in the in the military, and uh, my my dad was a public servant, and, and uh, I just uh, trying to give back to the community and and uh, you know uh, focus. I love Alaska. My plant, my family's been here since 1899, and we just uh, uh, we really, it's frankly, it's it's just embarrassing. Is that gold gold rush? Gold rush, yeah. My great grandparents came up during the the Skagway Gold Rush. And, uh, now, were they were they doing were they mining gold or were they selling were they selling goods? Yeah, they. Uh, that's where the money was. They, my my uh, great grandfather brought a crew of men up to build the White Pass and Yukon White Pass Railway. Okay, wow. So that uh, and uh, we've we've been there. In, in you Skagway. said your dad was a pope. Was he elected to something or? Uh, my 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 dad was a customs agent. Uh, that who is an ambitious customer. Oh, wow. he, cha- he chased every uh, he chased every promotion he could, and I lived in twelve different houses before I, I graduated from high school. As so we moved back, so you were like on the border, or you were? We moved back and forth. Well, there's a lot of customs activity in in major seaports. The uh, back and forth from uh, Tacoma and Seattle. Right, but I, were you on any like border state, like stationed on any like border, like Canadian border, Mexican border? Yeah, pretty much all of his career, we were in. Uh, Washington State and uh, and Alaska just moved back and forth. My Some mom, of those border towns are weird. I mean, like just basically the customs people live there because like n- it's just a little not even a town. It's more of just like a little kind of 
settlement for right. the and people who live, work there. We have tons of, of border activity. My, my 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 baby sister is in the uh, is in the family business. She's uh, been uh, in the the customs uh, and border protection uh, for uh, I think thirty years now. So that uh, oh well, fo- she, fo- she, followed dad. She followed followed my father, and she's she's getting re- ready to retire herself uh, uh, pretty soon. So uh, last thing, can you tell me who the new commissioner of education is going to be? I cannot uh, because we're still in the. Do you know? You don't know. Yeah, uh, we've just opened the window on the thirteenth of December. Uh, it'll the uh, for taking applications. It'll close on the thirteenth of uh, of January, and we'll evaluate uh, the the uh, candidates we get at that point. So for the folks listening, it's the only commissioner the governor doesn't get to pick. Right. Yeah. The Board of Education. Uh, he has to agree, right? Uh, yeah, we don't even consult him on on that. That's. But, but who, who you put forward? He has. Does he have to agree with him? That, no. That, yeah, that, that I'm, I don't think that's part of the process. That that the um, now the the, uh, the governor could probably fire the school board members if he doesn't like the uh, the commissioner that, that he mm-hmm. gets. But it's the only commissioner, the only cabinet level position that's not chosen by the governor. So we're gonna we're gonna know next month or before session or. Uh, th- that uh, th- that uh, we'll probably know within about uh, a month after that. We'll go through. Uh, there's a. That, that's again. That's when the the deadline for applications to be in is the thirteenth of, of January. So if you know that okay, somebody I, who wants to, to work for one hundred forty one thousand dollars a year to, to and and live in Juneau a lot, uh, and and uh, really loves uh, to to see kids do do better, you know, yeah, please forward their their names to us. I've got a bold prediction based off of no inside information, just just my kind of observational prediction. Dean of Bishop. Oh well, you that, know that's my that's my prediction. That that. Uh, uh, I I uh, I think Dean Bishop did a great job as, uh, as superintendent in a- ASD. I would uh, welcome her a- application along with all the other. Uh, and she actually knows she worked with Dunleavy when he was on the Matsu school board. Yeah. So they go back a lot, you know. So I, I just kind of figured the, maybe she's the downside of that. It's actually it's a it's a pretty significant pay cut for when the, her previous job as ASD. Um, oh yeah, so, uh, that's that's true. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, other other than that, that's. Um, again, we're looking for those Daniel Pink third drive people who are not necessarily there for the big paycheck, but the people who, who are, you know, somebody who's a, a really strong communicator that can uh, get out there in, in front and talk in front of, uh, you know, committee hearings and, and articulate the positions and, and uh, 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 regulation changes and everything that we we're making. We're looking for that type of individual who, who does it for the, for the right reason. They're motivated by the cause and not necessarily by a big paycheck. Last guy, Michael Johnson, he was uh, for a long time the third in line. Yes, he was lieutenant governor's successor. Yeah, now, he, now it's Jason, now it's Jason Bruni. He had a he had a very good uh, relationship with the governor as they were both uh, uh, they were both uh, superintendents from in, uh, rural districts and uh, they were uh, yeah they had a very special relationship. I'm I'm still a big fan of of Dr. Johnson who's taken a a, a job now as a, a dean in a Christian college down in the uh, southeast Alaska or southeast uh, United States. I think he I think he's also was also the only Walker holdover for people who worked for Walker commissioner he was the only that, one That who may be true. That may stayed, be true. So yeah. No. Don't leave kept I guess. Yeah, uh, very uh, incredibly talented individual. I'm, I'm glad to have uh, worked with we still keep in, in touch. I never got him on the podcast. We talked about it a couple times in Juno, so yeah, no. I missed off to maybe catch him in the future. Well, Bob Griffin, thanks a lot for coming on and um, I'm flying to thank God I bought one of these PFD Hawaii this weather, holy shit. I mean, yeah. I don't mind the cold. This is getting bad. Yeah. And I, people live in Fairbanks. I don't know what they're doing up there, but uh, I bought one of those PFD sales. 
to Kona on uh, in sometime in like early January before session. So, oh, good. are you doing that one, or are you because you were I, doing Phoenix, right? I'm I'm doing Phoenixes, and I have a big uh, uh, caribou hunt coming up, so I had to bid the local turns to to make my to shift my schedule around for January. But uh, February, I'll probably be doing Hawaii's again. Last time I, I uh, last thing we'll end with I this is a couple of years ago I was flying back from Kona and I knew you were going to be the the pilot and I said something oh just give me like kind of joke and give me a shout out and then you you said oh this guy in whatever 8C he's some talent scout for Discovery Channel and like several people came up to me I was like oh my god but one of them was was uh, uh Scott Ogan Scott Ogan who yeah. works for Mike Shower who's never really liked me I don't think or been a and he was like, "What the hell are you doing here? Like, what's, you know, <laughs> what's going on?" Here? Yeah, no. Uh, Scott came back to to pitch his treehouse. He was a really great. <laughs> he has a, a really cool treehouse. I've stayed in it and and uh, down in in, in Seldovia. But yeah, that was that was my twisted sense of humor there. To, yeah, to, no. I had some uh, other people say, "What well, you're you with the Discovery Channel?" Or yeah. I said, "No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. They said, "Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm sure just, you're not." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to, to have people come back there and bother you while you're watching your movies for five hours. You know, yeah. So. Well, thanks again, Bob, and uh, it's been great seeing you. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy this one didn't didn't you know went off without a hitch because I had the uh, the previous issue. And I want to apologize for that. That was yeah. that was uh, my uh, one of my most embarrassing podcast moments. Well, sorry for being such a wonk with the with the numbers, and and thanks for having me. No, it's good uh, to on, talk on, about on this stuff. on this long format. That's uh, this is uh, this is really good because you can really get into depth. Yeah. when you when we do this long format like this. Thanks again, Jeff. That's what we do. Yeah. Well, Bob Griffin, thanks again from the state state school board of education and Alaska Airlines pilot. So, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast, you want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline, radio.